Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Uplifting Impact Podcast. I'm Justin Ponder, Chief Information Officer with Uplifting Impact, and I'm excited to be hosting you today as we dive deeper into our journey to make the world more diverse, equitable, and inclusive. Today, I'm very excited to be talking with Cara Richardson-Whiteley. Cara Richardson-Whiteley, a plus-size adventurer, influencer, and advisor, is the author of Gorge, My Journey Up Kilimanjaro at 300 Pounds, which is being made into a movie with the This Is Us actress Chrissy Metz producing and starring as her. She has also been featured in countless media outlets such as the New York Times, Good Morning America, The Today Show, and She Explores. Global brands have trusted her to help connect with a plus-size audience, including L.L. Bean, Columbia, Keen, and Discover Puerto Rico. As an advisor, she helps brands connect with the plus-size market, an often untapped audience, 67% of U.S. women, which is prime for authentic growth. Cara, welcome to our show. Oh, thank you for having me. It's an honor and a pleasure. So we like to start things off with a quick icebreaker. So our question for you today is, what is one thing you believe will be fundamentally different about the world 50 years from now? I love this question. I fundamentally believe that uh, we will live in a more size inclusive world 50 years from now. I think believe that diet culture is starting to unravel and that people are understanding that bodies are all shapes and sizes and that we should not centralize weight as the key indicator of health. Same with beauty and the customers or companies will wise up and know that there are so many people to market to Mm -hmm. in so many different sizes. Well, that's one question about the future. I'd like to also ask a question about your past. So all these fantastic things I just read in your bio, can you tell us a little bit about your story and how you got there? Great. I founded The Gorgeous Agency, which helps brands authentically connect with folks in larger bodies through best practices in body inclusion because over over time, my history, I mean, ever since I was a kid, I felt like I didn't fit in and I didn't fit into the narrative of companies out there. And it didn't matter what I wanted to do. I mean, I, I wanted to be a hiker and I didn't look like yeah. <laughs> what the marketing of many companies put out there, of what a hiker girl looked like. And so my past has been a complicated relationship of food and body I struggled with binge eating disorder from at least age nine. At least that's the first memory of it. I also, you know, I didn't actually find out until two years ago that I also have lipedema. So that means that I carry a lot of my weight from the navel down, mm. <laughs> at least from na- from my navel to my knees. And so I've used that path, that complicated uh, history with food and body to to tell my story, which I've done in Gorge and the other books that I've written but I've also used it as a platform now to help brands and companies truly understand the impact of weight stigma and how to combat it in the workplace. I'm using it to help folks authentically connect and know that, that the customer journey, whether it's you know for clothing or fitness, travel, financial, there's so many different 
areas where people in larger bodies have felt like they, they don't fit in and, or they've been harmed, you know, where they feel burned by uh, the experience that they had. So I try to help brands course correct, not only because it's a great thing to do when it comes to diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, but also because it's a good business because the majority of Americans are in larger bodies. So uh, why not try to include them? And I love in your story that the mention of feeling like I did not belong and now helping people feel like they belong and then also helping people connect. And you also mentioned your book, Gorge, My Journey Up Kilimanjaro at 300 Pounds. Can you tell us a little bit more about kind of the history of that? What inspired you, first of all, to take that challenge of climbing Kilimanjaro in the first place? <laughs> well, uh, you know, I think the most important thing to know about me is that I've climbed Kilimanjaro three times. Um, the first time, <laughs> the first time was actually after a significant weight loss. I had on that path of just understanding that like, I wanted to be a hiker girl. I, I just wanted to hike. And so I started to check off, you know, the, the small little flat hikes in New Jersey, cause there's plenty of those. <laughs> I had this, um, 50 hikes of New Jersey book and I started with the easy hikes and then I went to the moderate hikes and the intermediate hikes. And I realized that moving my body was such a powerful thing that one molehill led to many, many mountains and up to one of the highest in one of the seven summits, which is Mount Kilimanjaro. It's Africa's highest peak. And so I just wanted to keep going forward. And that's what the first climb was all about. And my body did change fundamentally because I was moving it. And I suddenly, you know, the serotonin was pumping in my brain and I started to take care of my body in ways that I hadn't done in a long time. But about a year after hiking the mountain that first time, I was on to another adventure, which was having a baby. <laughs> and what I didn't realize at the time was that my struggle with food and body wasn't so much about calories in, calories out, but instead it was, you know, it was actually an eating disorder. It was binge eating disorder. It's one of the reasons why I love my work with Eating Recovery Center, because I can talk and build compassion and understanding for binge eating disorder. At the time, uh, after that first climb, I got pregnant. I, you know, I was sore. And then a lot of, it was so, when I was in this space of discomfort, which... <laughs> If you've experienced pregnancy, you know, that's a whole bunch of discomfort. A lot of those binge behaviors started to come back with a vengeance. Uh -huh. And, but I was afraid to talk about it because everybody was just celebrating my body and they, the, oh yeah, it was so amazing what you've done. You know, what are you, what are you doing? How long did it take? And how do I be part of it? And it was, it was so overwhelming to mm. always be focused on the fact like, People didn't even treat me like a human being before. Like they wouldn't hold uh, the door. They wouldn't look me in the eye. And now all of a sudden, you know, they're celebrating my body and now I'm pregnant and everybody's like, you're eating for two and all these different weird messages that just start to, yeah. just, they're so automatic and they're so body focused and they're so harmful, you know, mm. because inside I was tormenting myself like Kara, you know, you, you got to the top of Africa, right? You know, you looked out on the, you were so high up that like the horizon is curved. How is it that you just are crumbled by a cupcake and, and, and why does one cupcake turn into four? And 
I didn't understand what was really going on with me. And I didn't understand that, like, you know, I was really struggling with an eating disorder. And because, you know, food and body issues are just so simplified in this idea of like, it's just eat less, move more, you know, so simple, you know, right. there's all these like just judgments that happen that I felt such shame and absolute secrecy about what I was going through. Instead of reaching out when the baby came now add to the mix that I'm sleep deprived, which right. I've later learned is one of my biggest triggers also uh, under financial stress because I was on maternity leave and, you know, as a newspaper reporter, so that alone yeah. <laughs> of being a financial stress of just working and, and not being paid very much. So those two factors were into play. And so this, this binging behavior really spiraled to the point where I felt like I would never hike again, that I like, I don't know what I'm doing. I, I, I don't want to move my body. I'm so ashamed with what I've done to it. I thought that going back to Kilimanjaro a second time was going to be what healed me. Uh, <laughs> so spoiler alert, <laughs> it is not. And, mm. um, you know, that second climb is really a cautionary tale of, you know, just returning to a location doesn't mean that you can get it all together. And so, um, fast forwarding quite a bit and don't worry if you read Gorge, the whole story will unveil itself to you or and make sure everyone out there does. Yes. <laughs> right. Fast forward to the point where I was in a really dark place with my food and body and, and a friend had asked me if I wanted to climb Kilimanjaro with her to celebrate her 50th birthday. And she committed to raising all this money for an organization that I always climbed the mountain for. And my cousin-in-law also wanted to climb the mountain. And so there was a lot of pressure for me to join. And so I wondered, you know, how can I say no? I've got, you know, friends and relatives that want to climb with me. But I turned the question around to how can I say yes? Because I realized that I spent so much of my life and time thinking about myself as a before and after picture. Wow. Because that's, that's the narrative, right? Yeah. First you're fat, then you're thin and life is better when you're thin. Right. Mm. And I, I realized that like, that's not the truth of my body. The truth is I want to climb mountains and the truth is in nature, the thing, it wasn't about losing the weight. It was about having a true experience in the wild where Binging for me was all about pushing away a lot of the negative stuff from wow. a sexual assault, a divorce. I mean, and all the stresses of life, but in nature, it was all about pulling it in. Hmm. It didn't matter, you know, what I was about to encounter on the trail, you know, the most beautiful thing I've ever seen or the most terrifying, like if I ever ran into a bear right. <laughs> or a jerk who wanted to make a comment about my body, or if my feet got stuck in the mud, or if I had to, to navigate uh, challenging terrain, or if it started to thunderstorm, or if it was the most gorgeous, beautiful, sunny day I've ever experienced. I was there for it, present and willing to move forward no matter what. And so that's what the pole of hiking was. That's what I was drawn to Kilimanjaro to in the first place. And that's what I need to keep center in my being and in my story moving forward. And we mentioned in the intro that that story is the story of Gorge is be moving forward and being made into a movie. Uh, what do you hope folks get from both the book and the film? 
Yeah, I I think that it's it's really important to continually have, you know, that compassion and understanding that mm. all bodies are different and all bodies are worthy of living in the now. It's not about delaying joy or delaying the things that make you feel empowered or good. It's it's about living in the now. So that's what I hope that people get from the book and from the movie down the road. And that's a very powerful message for like the individual, like, hey, live in the now, be here, don't delay, don't wait for. And in diversity, equity, and inclusion work, the things that we do at Uplifting Impact, it's very much about creating structures, creating systems, creating programs, procedures. And also it very much focuses on, hey, what can we do at the micro-inclusive level and level of allyship, especially in the workplace for others. So what do you see as your work as very powerful message for all of us to see ourselves as we belong? We belong out here, we belong. It is our ability and our right to do these things rather than delay them. How do you feel your message overlaps with, for example, leaders who are trying to be more inclusive in their workplace? who maybe have a healthy dose of feeling belonging certainty all the time. What do you feel your work has to say for them about maybe fostering? And you mentioned it, that compassion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know it's, it's really important to do weight stigma awareness work yeah. at the corporate level. In fact, there was actually a Wall Street Journal article recently talking about how weight stigma is pervasive on every level every part of someone's career from hiring. You know, a lot of people don't even get considered if their bodies are viewed. So they actually, they they said that some people who are interviewing via Zoom feel way more comfortable and they're getting way more jobs because you're only seen from a small portion of your body. Also in the advancement of someone's career, you know, they, they talked about studies where managers had favorable opinions about people who were in standard size bodies. Also people in larger bodies aren't paid as more as their street size colleagues. And then same thing with, you know, leadership roles. Very few people in larger bodies, particularly women, are not in those leadership roles. And and then there's that culture, the day-to-day interactions. I mean, I touched upon this briefly about my work where my body was such an open conversation. Mm-hmm. Even in celebration, you said, like, you're like, hey, People may be being well-intentioned when you said you lost the weight. People were celebrating you, but still it was body focus. Yeah. It was always about your body. Yeah. I know people who have dropped pounds in the worst possible scenarios like cancer. And one was going through this horrific divorce and people like, oh, you look amazing. (laughs) You know, like, and it's so like, why? Like, okay, but this is an awful period of time in my life and like maybe ask how I'm doing. (laughs) And so it's not always a celebration. You don't know the narrative of somebody's body in the same way that, you know, when folks look at me, I'm sure they make a ton of assumptions about what I ate for breakfast and how I move my body. When in fact, I'm a Peloton fanatic and I've climbed Kilimanjaro three times. I'd love to hike. (laughs) And yet I think that people come up with a story of who I am and, and, and how I spend my time just by looking. And so that's one of the big things that we want to keep challenging. Yeah. And I think it's, it comes down to this fundamental issue of 
regardless of who we are, what our background is, what our experience is, our brain is trying to trick us into moralizing and vilifying difference. Mm. To be weary of it, to be afraid of it, to judge it. So even as you mentioned, people scan and make judgments about everything, moral judgments. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of the studies that you mentioned about difficulties when it comes to hiring, promotion, perceptions of competence, all come down to moralizing of body image and conflating it somehow with discipline, focus, and even morality. Right. That translates to supposed professional competence. What kinds of things? Well, first of all, I think it's important as a sidebar that body type, body image, and weight is not a protected status in the United States, even though it's pervasive. Yes. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I mean, there are very few places in this country where there's legislation to protect Mm -hmm. people you know, based on weight. And so, you know, you could be denied a job, you could be denied a hotel room, you could be denied a seat at a restaurant, simply because of the size of your body in places other than like Michigan and New York City. (laughs) There's only a handful of them out there. And so there's a real national movement to get weight discrimination a nationwide thing, because it is so important and affects so many people. And you mentioned a lot about the discrimination, bias, prejudice, and bigotry that happens in the workplace along the lines of things like perceptions of competence, hiring, getting to the next rounds of interviews, promotions. What kinds of things have you seen work to help people mitigate their own unconscious bias? So the person who's here, like, I'm a leader. I feel like I've done this before in the past. I I know I have all kinds of assumptions related to body type, body image, and weight. How do I make sure that doesn't cloud my perception of someone's professionalism and competence? What sorts of things have you found to be most effective at tricking the brain that's trying to trick us? (laughs) Yeah, that's always always mind games, right? But I mean, I think the first and foremost thing to do is trainings, trainings and, 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 and building that awareness. The first step is building awareness of that conversation, like, and calling it out. It's, and not that it's okay, but it happens. And, and weight bias is just programmed into us and understanding the background. One of the fundamental things we do at the gorgeous agency is to help people understand that weight stigma is complex trauma. I mean, it's complex trauma because it's coming from every level of your life. It's coming from authority figures. It's coming from social media. It's coming from the brands that you interact with. It's coming from a stranger on the street who has to make a comment or somebody in the grocery store who literally picks something out of your cart and says, you shouldn't have that, (laughs) you know, all sorts of, it can happen at every level, but what is so important and so heartbreaking is that it could be coming from your own home, you know, where, (laughs) uh, we're a family member, a mom, a loving partner who's loving in all sorts of other ways, but can't help but make digs and comments about somebody's body size and shape in a way that's doing harm. And also weight stigma doesn't have to only impact people in larger bodies, people in all sorts of size bodies can, you know, be, you know, stereotyped. They can face stigma. They can have comments that were made from a point of like, it's for your own good or for your health or to make you feel good when in fact they're doing harm. And so that training and that understanding is the first fundamental step. And then 
then, you know, there's the point of like, okay, how do we audit what's going on in this company? How do we look at mm. the salary ranges based on body shape and size? Now that's really complicated, <laughs> but it's important yeah. work. Yeah. From a marketing point of view, one of the things we do is we we audit what's being shown internally, externally. D- does it match, you know, the profile of, of, of what your workplace is or what you aspire to uh, attract? You know, are there branding standards that are just absolutely out of whack with what the world looks like? (laughs) And then we're talking about size diversity here and all sorts of different kinds of diversity. But, you know, we focus on size inclusion. So that's the next step. And then and then the next thing is is repairing that. So, okay, how do you move forward in a way that that isn't silly (laughs) and offensive? (laughs) Because that was that was my next question is. How, so somebody is listening, like, yes, this is so important. I can't believe my organization has neglected this very important community. I'm going to start trying to communicate. You know, uh, Cara's story about getting out into nature and feeling belonging has really resonated with me. I'm going to repair. But then sometimes they do things in ways that seem disingenuous or kind of cynical and opportunistic mm-hmm. or do not resonate with the communities are trying to engage. So what have you seen as like best practices or advice that you would give to make sure that even if I have really good intentions, that I don't come off as opportunistic and performative, which is a valid concern, especially in this environment where so many organizations are being called out for, yeah, this is too little, too late, or sometimes too much, too late to seem genuine. <laughs> so what right. does it look like when people and organizations do this communicating, this repairing? What does it look like when a leader truly does this well? And I think that first and foremost, that they're at least consulting or having somebody who has lived experience in a larger body in the room, in the decision making process. Um, I was just at Columbia Sportswear and got a great question about this, like, why aren't more brands using people like the gorgeous agency or, you know, folks in larger bodies to, to start to plan and design and to, to really focus in on this conversation. And, and, you know, the results, if you're not including lived experience, if you're not including folks in larger bodies at the table are obvious, they, they do look disingenuous. They do look performative. And, you know, I mean, there's even brands in my view that have, just gone, like you said, too much, too late. <laughs> like, and, and, mm-hmm. and my friends who are in the outdoor space or in the active space, look at this brand, like, oh, you know, I don't, are they trying to appeal to me? Because this is, looks weird. And so it's really important that you have a number of voices and, and people, not just one opinion, but several. That's why, you know, at the gorgeous agency, for example, I was about to turn in some copy to one of our clients. And I'm like, I just want another set of eyes on this because I feel like it's right. But is it too silly or does it, is it overkill? Is it because you want to have multiple voices and people at the table and make sure that the the seats at those table fit people in larger bodies too. Cause there's, you know, that's one other step of like, you know, size inclusivity. It's not just the, it's not just the marketing materials, but like, are literally the seats at the table, are they big enough for people mm-hmm. sitting there? So are it's not the metaphorical table? seats at the table. Like, are it we getting opportunities, the, the literal table. seats at the table as well? And so one of the most common 
And I love this idea of like, hey, having almost built in inter-rater reliability, right? Building into time, into our procedures, having checks and balances for multiple perspectives. We often like to say the best way to mitigate unconscious bias is to multiply the number of consciousnesses on the decisions. I love that. But they, yeah, Thank you. But the number one response we get is, that's great. Who has the time? Mm. So how do you respond to folks who are genuine about wanting to do this work, but they're under so many pressures that are under the time crunch. Like, and how do you do this? Well, how do you do it authentically when it feels like everyone has shrinking amounts of time? Have you found ways to, or advice that you would have for us to fold this body inclusivity and this inter-rater reliability and having conversation into the work that we do? in ways that remain genuine, even if we're under enormous pressures and time crunches? It's a great question um, because, you know, some people could look at body inclusivity and weight stigma and be like, oh, that's an add-on. <laughs> you know, yeah. here we go. Like, here's another DE&I thing we got to think about now, right? right. Um, and I can, I get that because there's, you know, there's, there's an awakening and there's awareness of making sure that people feel like they belong. And then like, once you unlock one category, there's another category. What about, and what about, yeah. Right. But I think that the argument here is that this is business critical. This is business critical because our belief at the gorgeous agency is that, you know, this work is so imperative when it comes to growing authentically, you know, you're talking to a market that has just been left, <laughs> left behind. And it's also key to attracting and retaining talent. Yeah. But, you know, just let's talk about that growth for a second. I mean, look at the way that our marketplace is built. And, and, and as a marketplace, let's talk about the physical mall. <laughs> right. If I walk into the mall, there's, there's a mall like two miles from my house. It's an amazing mall. It's the mall at Short Hills. And if I got invited to a party or if I had to go to a funeral or if I needed something special outside of my closet, I can't get it at most of the stores in that mall. I mean, there are dozens upon dozens of stores. And if I went into a store that has promised me that they have plus sizes, I would be turned away and said, you can buy that online. And so then, you know, there's the point of like, you can buy that online. And so, all right, that's not a consolation prize. That's an insult because, you know, if I have to buy something online, I'm not quite sure what size, you know, what the sizing is because sizing and yep. extended sizes is just all over the map. Absolutely. So now it's like, I like to equate it to you, you go to the cashier, you hand them your credit card, you give them like a grand. <laughs> if you want to try on a few things in a few different sizes, well, that's like five or six items. And these days things are so expensive, right? right. And so now not only do you have to wait, so you have to put your life on hold, you have to put your money on hold, and then it's going to take, you know, a week or two and who knows with processing times these days, it can, it can be like two weeks that your money is held up in this holding pattern as you're just trying to try on and be part of someone's brand. And the reality of all that is, is that, you know, oftentimes I'll get something like a shirt or a dress and I'll be like, oh, fine. And it doesn't look right and it doesn't feel good. Or maybe the fabric isn't what I expected or the color was a little bit off. And now I'm just mad 
right? You know, doing this work, you know, to get back to your question, I know I kind of went on a tangent there because that is just the human experience of shopping. And it so needs to be repaired, not just in the, the, you know, apparel space, but all over the map. It's business critical because you're, you may be building those sizes, but like, are you building the customer journey to make Mm. that easier? And even if, even if it, you know, the only way to offer it is business critical, can't you, you know, can't you build in policies that are more humane and don't take so much money out of someone's pocket just to be part of your brand, to try something on? Can't we, can't we solve that? And that's, that's what we do is we start to create those solutions of like, how do we make this easier? Like, okay, maybe we can't shift, fundamentally shift this business problem that you have that you can only offer some of these things in the certain ways, but how do we make it easier? How do we make it more welcoming? Cara Richardson Whiteley, you've given us a lot to think about, about how to make things better and more inclusive. So for those of us who are listening and want to learn more from you, how can we get in touch with you? Oh, great question. Um, the best place is our website, which is thegorgeousagency.com. And of course, you can also find me on LinkedIn um, at Cara Richardson Whiteley and also the Gorgeous Agency on LinkedIn and on Instagram is also a fun place to visit, especially for my personal page, which is Cara Richardson Whiteley. And we've just launched the Gorgeous Agency on Instagram. So those are the best ways to find us and reach out to us. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Cara Richardson Whiteley, for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. And thank you to all of you out there who tuned into this week's episode of the Uplifting Impact Podcast. We need more people to help us uplift the impact. In order to do so, please be sure to share this episode, comment on it by going to our website at upliftingimpact.com or provide your thoughts directly to us through LinkedIn at Uplifting Impact, Justin Ponder, and Deanna Singh. Until next week, keep uplifting the impact. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.